Season 2 of The Next Unicorns is brought to you by Embroker. The Embroker Startup Insurance Program helps startups secure the most important lines of insurance at a lower cost and with less hassle. Go to Embroker.com slash Angel and get 10% off by using code ANGEL10. LinkedIn Jobs. A business is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. Get $50 off your first job post at LinkedIn.com slash Unicorn. And Trends by The Hustle. Track and capitalize on emerging industries and trends before they explode. Start your two-week trial for just $1 at trends.co slash twist. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to This Week in Startups. It's 2020, the year of the pandemic, and it's September. It's been six months under some form of shelter in place, lockdown, and the predominant issue people are dealing with right now at this moment in September is not the pandemic itself. We seem to have learned to live with the pandemic. It is the second order impact of the pandemic that is causing great concern, anxiety, stress, and frustration for Americans specifically. And the tip of that spear is going back to school, education. Colleges are charging the same price for classes over webcams as they were in person. And this is against the backdrop of people questioning if higher education was even worth it to begin with people going into student debt at a level we've never seen coming out of it in their 40s, never being able to buy a home and feeling the system is rigged and that capitalism is broken. I don't blame him in some ways. If you told me my $200,000 in debt was going to return some amazing life, well, uh, and it didn't, I might be pretty cynical too. And I might think that socialism and uh, free education and free college was the solution. It turns out that that's probably not the case. It's probably that we need to innovate and we probably need to rethink education from the bottom up. Teachers unions have caused massive problems within the K through 12 space. Higher education is generally considered a ripoff and not worth it. When I went to college, it was 10, 12K a year for Fordham University. My first job coming out, I think I made 50. So, my first year equaled the cost of the education. Very few people are graduating and having that same equation work. But there is hope. Uh, and it turns out that most of the great companies now in Silicon Valley don't look at your credentials. They look at your skills. They no longer care that you came from Stanford or Harvard or MIT. Sure, that's not a minus to them, but it's not required. And it used to be venture capitalists used to just simply back Stanford graduates. That's why Santo Road runs directly into Stanford's campus. It is literally across the street and down the road. You can walk from MIT, walk from Stanford to Sequoia Capital. That's all changed. Not only the funding of companies, but how we learn. Masterclass, which I passed on investing like an idiot. Cost me $20 million, that missed investment. But I did invest in Brilliant.org. Uh, and Lambda. And there's a ton of other interesting companies teaching everything like Steezy for dance, uh, to math, to science. Lifelong learning is becoming a thing. And today we continue our next unicorn series, which has been absolutely on fire. Uh, this is episode six, we had uh, some really great guests so far. And we got an incredible, incredible response to our last guest, episode five, Cody Friesen from Zero Mass Water. They're literally putting hydro panels. Think of them like solar panels on your roof that suck water out of the air. And then they let you use that water in your house. Pretty amazing, right? Uh, could solve water forever. Uh, very easily, in fact. Education is one of those problems that we could solve right now. And our guest today is trying to do just that. Welcome to the program, David Blake from Degreed.com, D-E-G-R-E-E-D.com, correct? Correct. Degreed. You heard my introduction there. Education, uh, higher education specifically, is a complete ripoff and totally unnecessary in today's workforce, yes or no? Uh, for more people than not. Yes. Okay, so for the majority of people, I just did that as a test to see how candid you would be on the podcast. 
<laughs> and you pass the test. It's a hard thing to say, but it is the absolute reality that you or I, uh, do you have kids, may I ask? I do. I've got three. Okay. I have three as well. And uh, my oldest is 10. Your oldest is? 12. Okay. So we will be dealing with this issue in, in your case in just three or four yep. years, and I'll be dealing with it in six or seven. Yep. And we are people of means. Uh, but even we would question the value of going 250K into debt or spending 250K on a college degree, correct? Correct. How did it all go so wrong? So, the heart of the issue is the credential. I mean, if, if you want to take a broad brushstroke and um, sort of understand what's actually going on, it's the credential. We've seen education be democratized. I mean, right now available to every listener on this program today for free is, a, is an Ivy League education. Between edX and the MOOC platforms and OER resources, if you are dedicated and hardworking, you can go get yourself an Ivy League education today for free. And yet that hasn't brought down the price um, that these institutions are charging. And, you know, it's interesting as we come to COVID, it's a, it's a good revelation of what is going on. But you have to ask, where is the value held? And a majority of the value is held in the actual credential. And there is value held in other parts. And I think that's what people are seeing with COVID, which is you start to pull apart the pieces and is a big bundle. People are willing to pay $200,000 for it. But you start pulling a you know, the pieces apart and saying, is this piece worth, you know, what to me? And one of the biggest revelations is that what you pay for in education is not the learning. The learning is available today for free online. What you are paying for are other things, primarily the credential, but people are just waking up to that because all of a sudden they're on a Zoom call with a professor and 30 other people and being charged $16,000 for the pleasure. So, when one looks at that, the other thing that's causing this revelation is that the experience of college, people frequently say, hey, the experience is part of what you're paying for and the network. So, this unbundling, the pandemic has yep. forced people to recognize the components and it has, in fact, unbundled the components. So, the experience is gone, the networking is gone, and what's left is the MOOC, the Massively, uh, Massively Open uh, Online Course, which we actually had Daphne Kohler, who co-founded Coursera on the program, talking mm -hmm. about Citro as the first of the next unicorn guests. That's what's actually happened here. And what you're saying is that the component of the course at an Ivy League school is freely available already. So what people were paying for is not that. And when people do pay $16,000 for something that is available for free, they get pretty irate and their eyes open up and they say there has to be a better way, correct? Correct. Yeah. So, uh, when we look at this post-pandemic, uh, one question on that, why, if all of this Ivy League education is available for free, and it has been for, I think, getting close to a decade now, uh, since edX and Coursera started putting their stuff online. Why have people in America not realized this and absolutely swarmed on the MIT free education, the Harvard free education, the Stanford free education, done the coursework, printed out their homework, and when they go for a job, hand it to the potential uh, employer? Why has sure. this not happened? So let me, let me ask you a question. Tell, tell me about your education. If you, ask, if you ask anyone that question, tell me about your education, 99% of the people will tell you where they went to university or what degree they have. And it's an absurdity, but it's a good reflection of the absurdity of the world we, we sort of find ourselves in. And um, it's a reflection of our inability to answer any other way. If I say, tell me about your education... And you start saying, well, you know, three years ago, I, I took this course and, you know, I got mentored by so-and-so and then I had this great project. We, we just, it's hard to contextualize. There's no universal language as we, you know, have to talk about um, the messy process of education. And that's where heuristics and credentials um, step in. They give us a language with which to convey and to speak 
um, about our education. But the world's only universal credential, the only universal language, is that of the college degree. And let's be and so let's be sincere here uh, and cynical at the same time. It's also a way to sort of give an indication of your status and your caste in life. I went to Yale, you went to Brown, this person went to Harvard, this person went to Fordham, somebody else went to CUNY. It is a way to signal status, correct? The credentials, the actual associates or bachelors, bachelors of science and economics, and yet we usually answer with where we went to university. Yes. Um, The logo. Yeah, because the brand is as much uh, of what conveys the the information as the actual um, credential and the actual degree. You know, and how we how we get past this is we need that the the job to be done. We shouldn't resent it. If I do at times need to know about your skills, I need to know whether or not you're educated and in what and what your capabilities are and what your knowledge is. Like we have that need. If I'm going to hire you, I have that need. If I'm going to staff you on a project, if we're going to team up, I have that need. We shouldn't resent the need, but we just need a better way of being able to communicate an answer for it if we're going to get past this. So when we get back from this break, you have thought about this a lot. I've teed it up for you. When we get back, (laughs) I want to hear the solution you came up with at Degreed.com when we get back on This Week in Startups. I need to give you an important message right now. You need insurance for your startup. I know that you got a lot on your mind. You got a lot to think about hiring product market fit. This is one of the checkboxes that you have to get right if you're going to grow up and you're going to be an at-scale startup, and you better get on it early, and it's not that hard because of my friends at Embroker. They love startups. They put a lot of effort into startups, and they've been supporting this podcast now for a couple of years, and you need insurance for your startup for a number of reasons. I'm going to just break it down for you because I have this conversation all the time when I join the board of a company. Do we have directors and officers insurance, D and O? What does that mean? It means that if your directors, uh, i.e. board members, officers, the people who run the company, i.e. you, if something happens and somebody does something stupid on your team, you need to protect the officers of the company, i.e. you and your co-founders, and you need to have your directors protect it in case somebody does something stupid or you make a mistake. That's called directors and officers referred to as DNO. And of course, you need cyber insurance because everybody's getting hacked left and right. And you could do everything right. You could have triply good security. And somebody just leaves something, some backdoor open in some third party piece of software. And bing, bang, boom. Now you're getting sued. And in brokers, technology saves you time and money. And their prices are 20% lower. And you get better coverage. You just go and you sign up and you get a quote and a purchase in under 10 minutes. They basically built a service that takes out all of these traditional insurance companies where you deal with you know days and weeks and yet you have all these like opaqueness nope everything is easy breezy okay so if you want to get an extra 10 percent off they're already low prices and save even more time and not deal with hassles i just want you to go and use the promo code angel 10 so you're going to go to inbroker.com slash angel and you're going to use the promo code Angel 10. All right. It is September in the year 2020. And this is being recorded on Zoom with me on Bryan Street in a desolate, desperate, and depressing San Francisco. And my guest, David Blake from Degree.com, a recent refugee, uh, <laughs> a recent uh, statistic, if you will, of the people who once believed in San Francisco who have now left. Uh, because of the pandemic, correct, David? You, your family made the choice to leave San Francisco at this time. We were we were neighbors only weeks prior. I, our office was on Bryant Street, and I lived in San Francisco ten years. But I am part of the great COVID migration. How does it feel having relocated to such an amazing city, Salt Lake City? Great place to be, uh, Utah, amazing state. How does it feel? Uh, in terms of leaving San Francisco, which was just such a hub of energy, economics, and it felt like a necessity. And now you're in Salt Lake City. Is your company running better, the same or worse now that you've left? And you also talk about lifestyle. Yeah, lifestyle is definitely arbitraged and, and I'd say better. You know, you're able to um, be outdoors. We were uh, 
having to shelter in place very seriously in San Francisco out here. There's just more trails right behind our house, open space. It's a little bit easier to get out and to still um, stay safe and keep others safe while doing so. Um, in terms of the business, we actually, my co-founder and I started the business in San Francisco, me in San Francisco, and um, he in Salt Lake City. So we grew from the very beginning, co-located like that. Um, it was still early enough that you know, early on, it made our job harder with venture capitalists. They didn't like the fact that we were not together and we weren't in San Francisco, but you know, probably circa, I don't know, probably circa 2000 and. 15 2016 you know the the tides began to turn and most people started to say you know it was a great strategy it was a smart move and you know we started getting phone calls uh, from other vcs and companies asking you know what it's like to have uh, be co-located in salt lake city and and other sort of secondary why um, why did why did it look cities. so smart in the year of 2016 as opposed to 2010 when it might be a reason to not get funded yeah, I mean, just the is costs of San Francisco kept rising and rising and rising. Real yeah. estate and uh, payroll. And the benefit of San Francisco was you could go down to Sand Hill Road or the Sand Hill Road VCs all opened offices or little satellites and cafes and workspaces in the city. The ability to visit 100 investors in one month, three a day, every day, and still only tap into maybe one or 2% of the investors here was just yeah. an amazing win. But at some point, the salaries and the cost of living broke people, correct? I mean, I think, look, the, I'm an advocate for the magic of Silicon Valley. Like when I got out there, it was just amazing how generous people are with their time, how the, the ideas and sort of bump up against each other and people and, and opportunity. And that felt magical. And I believe it is magical. The, the, the part that I think is you know, hard to endure is is the cost, the city, the pressure, the homelessness, the crime, um, you know, the schools. I have three kids. Um, you know, we were in a great school, but navigating it in those waters is, uh, is really challenging. Um, you know, so I think it's, it's kind of everything else that's put a lot of pressure um, into the equation. What do you think happens post-pandemic? And then we'll get into degreed. What do you think happens post-pandemic? Let's say a vaccine comes out in Q1. Uh, that seems actually likely. Uh, there'll be some number of vaccines uh, available. Let's say uh, people wear their masks and comply, and we get test and tracing up. And obviously, high speed testing is is here. It's just not equally distributed yet. Uh, so when it becomes equally distributed, and you know, walking into the movies might require you to show up. 20 minutes early and take a, a, a little swab outside the movie there as stupid as it sounds or going into a hotel might require you to if you want to stay at a hotel to take a test on the way in getting on a flight obviously no brainer already happening in some parts of the world let's say we crush this and it's gone in q1 and then in q2 we wake up and everybody's back to normal which is a i think the likely scenario i'll be honest i feel like we're on the cusp of, of doing that other places are getting back to to some level of normalcy what do you think happens post pandemic? to San Francisco and the Bay Area and this whole remote work culture. Yeah, I mean, I think the, um, I would say people who are, who are, you know, the cities always win. They always win. Over the long arc, humanity has always gathered. Density mm. has always created opportunity. Density has created um, higher degrees of creativity and innovation. Like density over the long arc always wins. And so I think what happened because is probably of those healthy. Because of those collisions you mentioned earlier, that randomness yeah. and that, that density of talent and the collisions that occur, those two factors are just amazing. Yeah. And, you know, but like, there's no reason that San Francisco has to be the only place mm. where ideas can, can collide. And I think um, other cities will have greatly benefited by this sort of migration and will give them a new normal. And, you know, I would hope, I think it's good for, for all of us. I think it was really good for San Francisco to take some of that pressure out. You know, it was getting very high pressure to just be able to, to live and sort of maintain yes. um, in the city. And, and it's taken some pressure off. I think San Francisco is still going to be an incredible place next year and five years and 10 years and, and 20 years. But I also hope and believe that we will be better by, by having other cities that are able to specialize and to, you know, have um, density in different themes and areas and topics. Um, and I think that's good for everyone. I literally tweeted, hey, I think we're going to get to this great renaissance where 
San Francisco turns into the San Francisco I encountered in 1999 and 2002 when I first started coming here in my late 20s, early 30s, and was just fascinated by the 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 crazy fun of it and the artistic mm -hmm. nature of it. And if all this collapses, well, we could have $2,000 a month single one bedrooms. And then somebody <laughs> said, by the way, that's what Austin is now, $2,000 <laughs> for one bedroom. And I had this great laugh because you, I, that's an incredible insight of yours. I think that the pressure being taken off of San Francisco allows new people to come in. And it also sends a signal to the incompetent governance, the dysfunctional governance that allows uh, you know, a homeless, and I'm using air quotes here, problem, which is clearly a mental illness, or primarily a mental, according to statistics and all the experts we've we've had on the program and everybody who's talked about it. This is not an issue of homelessness in that there is no home. This is a matter of mental illness and drug addiction in the majority of cases. And I think this is going to make California then have to compete with Austin, Texas, Salt Lake City, and Utah uh, for these same founders, correct? Like Salt Lake City is stoked that you're there. Yeah. And, uh, you know, uh, by, by many accounts, I'm not the only one. I mean, it's a, it's a great tech hub. The community has done phenomenal things over the last sort of 10, 12, um, 15 years, Silicon Slopes as an actual organization and community. Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's healthy and it's vibrant out here. Ryan from Qualtrics, he's trying to get me out there for Silicon Slopes. I'm coming out. I'm coming out. I'm going to be the keynote. I'm going to do a fireside chat with them, I think. Uh, so tell me, um, what is Degree.com? Who are your customers? How do you make money? How do you charge for the product? What's the outcome you're selling with this software platform? Yeah, the, the genesis and the vision was tell me about your education. Mm. And when, when people go skip 10, 15, 20 years of their lives to answer with university, it's a reflection of this need and opportunity in the market. And our vision was to create a, a model of lifelong learning where people could answer for all of their real-time education and skills, um, all of their academics, all of their personal and formal learning, all of their professional training. And that's what we built. We started in circa 2012, sort of, you know, Fitbit and quantified self was, was a big uh, theme. So that, that sort of theme of tracking and reflecting mm. was a big one, um, you know, uh, and, you know, where it's taken us is this currency as we look in the 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 rear view mirror the currency that we transacted on was the college degree but as we look forward the the needs of the workplace the demand for half-life of skills is coming down that means we have to learn more and more the the skills gap is growing the um, war for skilled talent remains even amongst covid unemployment we're in an environment where there's a high level of need for particular skills. And that's created a, a pressure and an opportunity. And the future of work, the currency will be skills. Um, it increasingly is. We've seen it with Google. We've seen it um, from... Google the, just made the, an announcement, right? They just made this announcement. Google announces 100,000 scholarships for online certificates in data analytics, project management, and UX. Google basically is saying, hey, you know, what colleges are offering, uh, we're just going to do ourselves, correct? They're, they're looking to just yeah. uh, find talented people and teach them what they need and, you know, college degree, credential be, be damned. We're now the credentialer. If you pass one of those certificates, they waive um, sort of any degree requirement. Okay, so essentially your vision for degreed has been embraced by Google, uh, which is a pretty good sign that you're onto something. How does your product manifest itself? I saw Atlassian was a customer on your website. Atlassian pays you $5 per employee per month, $50 a year to have them take a course in UX design or management. H how does it work? Because I saw there was some sort of dashboard for the HR department to sort of see people's skills going up and your marketing on the website and everything's phenomenal, but it all kind of funnels you into a uh, a demo, which is how SaaS is supposed to work, right? You're supposed to get every, the goal The goal is to get to a demo. I wanted you to unpack here for us on the show. How, how do you charge for it? And then what sure. are they looking for as an outcome? explain the actual detail of what you do and how people pay and how it's a business when we get back on this week in startups all right brass tacks let's get right to it 50 dollars for you right now for linkedin jobs from me to you 50 bucks off your first job listing jay from 10 golden rules runs a boutique marketing agency and he used linkedin jobs to post an account manager position and he got 150 qualified grade applications and 
After identifying his top two targets, Jay noticed that he shared a mutual connection on LinkedIn. That's the power of LinkedIn versus other message boards, you know, or places where you can just, you know, get drive-by resumes sent to you and it's all noise and no signal. Well, oh, he signaled in. Oh, we have a mutual contact. That's the power of LinkedIn. You know that. And he hired his favorite candidate over Zoom. And so congratulations to Jay from 10 Golden Rules. You can find the right person right now because LinkedIn has over 690 million members worldwide. And they screen the candidates on LinkedIn for the soft and the hard skills you're looking for. So you find that culture fit. You know it's the best job platform in the world. Period. End of story. There is no discussion. There is no debate. LinkedIn Jobs is the best place to hire. So when you're ready to make that perfect hire, I want you to go to linkedin.com slash unicorn. That's right. LinkedIn.com slash unicorn, which is what you're building right now. You're building a unicorn company and you will get $50 off your first job posting. And that is an amazingly generous gift. Thank you to my friends at LinkedIn for doing this. Terms and conditions do apply because it's 50 bucks and you're getting a 50 the 5 from jcal and linkedin thanks again linkedin for supporting independent media like this week in startups speaking of which let's get back to this amazing episode all right david blake is here from degreed and uh, you can visit degreed.com he's raised a ton of money and he uh i'm not sure you i think you did uh <laughs> you're at a 580 million dollar valuation according to my notes you raised 32 million in your c3 i've never even heard of a c3 uh from al ventures they took the entire round you've raised over 185 million congratulations my man mark cuban got in there that's nice how do you know mark yeah those numbers are getting a little bit dated but uh mark oh, yum, yum. uh mark was a a cold email i told him we are jailbreaking the degree and uh that uh I knew he cared because he had been blogging about the future yep. of education. On blog, and he wrote Maverick. back. Yeah. He wrote back and said, uh, "Tell me more." And so, after a, a brief exchange, he was one of our earliest Just shipped hundred uh, K right? investors. CC is a lawyer. It shipped hundred K. That's what he did with me. Check. Check. Yep. Yep. It's it's like literally. He's like, okay, I'm in, and he just CCs his attorney, <laughs> and it's just like, here, ship a hundy, and then the attorney was like, can we sh- ship two hundy? Uh, then we sh- then it was like, can we ship three hundy? And he put three hundred into Weblogs Inc. Famously, we sold the company, and and he, he made uh, I think that's five not, that's not far from my experience. Yep. Oh, he did. Did he up it? <laughs> he upped it after he got more conviction. He usually starts three, about three hundred. It was three hundred. That's literally what it did with yeah. us. And then it came back and said, "Could we put five hundred And I was like, "We we don't know what to do with that much money." Sorry, yeah. just like pump the brakes. Let me spend the three hundred. Uh, but well, yeah. yeah, he's a great investor. And then you get those late night emails of six hundred words from him he's, with like actual details about every aspect of your business. And you're like, "He's up at two in the morning thinking about my business." Everything I've ever asked, he's responded on. He's delivered on every every email. He's uh, response. That's how it's, I it's, learned it's incredible. to be. It's incredible how yeah. how responsive he's always proven. That's how I. That was one of the things I stole from him when I started becoming an angel investor was re- response time. And so what I do is I start at my. Most people start their email like, okay, where's the last email? Because you didn't want to be courteous, like, oh, it's been a day since I got back to people. I always start at the top, the person who came in one minute, because I'm going to be late for the other person. So I must just start at the top, and I just respond yeah. to people so fast and somebody was like uh somebody told the story i think it was arlen hamilton told the story um shout out arlen your first million great podcast uh been on this pod three times i think uh she said she was like emailing with him and then she saw he was at the all-star game or you know the super bowl or something (laughs) on his phone responding to her because they cut to him uh great investor so so walk me through the actual business i get the i concept we've been going concept and wide and we're now sort of getting in in this discussion in our third segment here um how do you price it yeah price uh so it's a SaaS business 100 percent of the revenues are SaaS reoccurring um we're unique for a SaaS business in that um, individuals own their data. And what that enables is part of our vision for lifelong mm. learning. So even though it's an enterprise SaaS business model, when you leave, you get to take your profile and your data <gasps> with you to your so next employer. Brilliant. And what that's enabled, and, uh, and we'll come back to the economics on it, but what that enables is we've um, been very disciplined and all of our clients, we've kept them um, using the same standard of language for skills and skill measurement. So what that means is for the first time in the world, if, you are at, um, if you're at uh, HSBC or if you're at Citibank or if you're at Bank of America and you leave and you go to a, a Visa or a MasterCard or you go to USAA, you go to Prudential or, or you know, being a level four in international tax 
now means the same thing at all of those institutions. And people get to take their data and their profile and essentially their, their skills record, their skill profile with them. Uh, and anywhere that's using Degreed, it, it, it holds universal meaning and universal context. And what's particularly brilliant about that, you gave the um, perspective of the individual and how amazing that is. Hey, I'm going to this new company. I send them my link on Degreed. If they do not have Degreed, they say, what's Degreed? And then it is making your product viral. So now they say, oh, maybe we should have Degreed. And when they take that job there, I'm assuming they add that they now work at this new company. And now your sales department in the SaaS department now knows who to call to infect the new company with Degreed, correct? Just like Salesforce sort of infected every company as, as they went along. But this yeah, is even if, more viral. If, if you think about, you know, w- when we need to work with people, you know, where they've worked matters, their experience, you mm-hmm. know, who they are, who they know, and what they know or what their skills are. All of those things do matter. And the resume in LinkedIn has historically really been about who do you know? Yep. And what your experiences are. Yep. And, you know, really degreed by going in and serving enterprise and being the, the giving an organization transparency into what skills everyone inside their organization has, has now become the system of record for some of the world's largest organizations. We're being used, we're coming up on half of the Fortune 200. We're, we're somewhere between a third and half of uh, the world's wow. largest organizations. Use Degreed enterprise-wide, top to bottom, top of the organization, all the way down. And um, so for the first time ever, organizations are able to ask and answer the question, you know, what skills do we have? What skills do we need? And how do we, you know, get to where we need to go? And, and as so simple as that sounds, CEOs yeah. couldn't do that, you know, two, three, four years ago. And it is a real benefit when a young person or, or even an older person, but particularly young people come to an organization and you say to them, hey, we're going to give you $5,000 towards like night school. I remember that was like a big thing when we were coming up in the, in the 90s, like, will they pay for my master's or continuing education? They would, you know, different places had different stipends, $1,000, unlimited, mm-hmm. whatever. In your case, this is a real benefit because, uh, and I mean, a benefit in terms of like healthcare, dental, education is continuing education is is a benefit it should be considered as such by the employee correct yeah and one of the ways we've really reoriented the conversation is that corporate training was historically all about governance and compliance and so it never felt like you were investing in me the person it always felt like you were asking me to go learn something to to cover your ass and you know we've we've switched that paradigm this is now lifelong. I get to mm. take this record with me and I get to see all of the resources that the company is making available to me. And we've really reoriented it around your development as an employee rather than the company's sort of uh, requisite, sort of compliance and, and governance and requisite needs. So it's really employee driven. Got it. How do you charge? You charge by course, by employees of $5 a month per active user, like sort of like the Slack model where you only charge for active people, because I could see that being a roadblock. You go into an organization with 10,000 people, only 100 people use the product. People don't want to pay $60 a year for 10,000, want to pay $60 a year for those 100 people who used it. How do you charge? Um, we charge per employee per year, and we charge for everyone in the organization. H- how much? Yeah, tens, tens of dollars per person per year. Okay, so I, I, I guess $60 a person a year. Um, does that mean they, if they have to use it, if they don't use it, do you still have to pay? Or is it only per active user? It's for all, all employees. Oh, okay. Our clients pay for everyone to use it, whether or not they ever log in. We have very oh. high degrees of um, activation and engagement. Got and it. that's, uh, you know, some of our clients, we're seeing, you know, this, this whole refocusing on the employee changes everything. Some mm. of our um, clients, they were seeing around non-compliance learning. They were seeing less than 10% of the organization engage annually. And now a majority of our clients will see more than half of the organization mm. engage in non-compliance learning monthly. And if you do that math, I mean, that's orders of magnitude. Yeah. The HR department uh, must be... We've been able to drive in terms of engagement. The, the HR and the learning, the, whatever, the development groups must be over the moon with this. What are the most popular courses and who creates the courses? Yes. So we bring the ecosystem together. 
articles, videos, books, podcasts, courses, MOOCs, e-learning, conferences, events. We are not the training provider and we Mm. do not develop the content. We are just bringing it all together so that it is organized in one place. You can search by um, topic. You can go for JavaScript and see what courses your organization has that they've developed. You can see all of the vendors, a Pluralsight, uh, a LinkedIn Learning, a Udemy. You can see all of the courses that they've purchased and made available to you, as well as you can just see every course on JavaScript out there um, full stop um, and see if there's one that is outside of your company's um, vendors that you would prefer to take. And so we just bring it all together in one place. So the if the CEO comes in one day and she says, you know what, everybody in this goddamn organization needs to read, uh, you know, good to great, or uh, crossing the chasm, whatever it is, or creativity, Inc, even better creativity, Inc. Mm-hmm. They could say, listen, there's a masterclass on creativity, Inc. And there's a book for creativity, Inc. I want to see exactly how many team members I can get to read this because I think creativity Inc is essential. And oh, there's a podcast where J Cal on this week in startups did two uh, episodes. Yeah, I'm talking about myself in third person. Um, <laughs> it's a two parter. She could then just say to the organization, I think this is important that people watch these podcasts, read the book, do the masterclass. And you could then check off, hey, they understand creativity uh, in the organization. That is true. And I'll tell you further is just creating that transparency, being able to see inside an organization what your CEO is learning mm. is really powerful. And, you know, they may or may not ever choose to go and tweet, I just finished this book and I really enjoyed it. But with Degreed inside the organization, I'm able to follow leaders. I'm able to follow my, my mentors, my manager. I'm able to see what they're learning. Oh. People are able to see what I'm learning. And just creating that transparency is really powerful. Yeah, a CEO reads an article and logs it on to greed, and all of a sudden, you know, everyone inside the organization will will have read it a week later. I have a uh, question that uh, I need a candid answer on, which is, who's on the clock for education? In other words, if I'm the boss and I say, you know, I would love to see people read Creativity Inc., but it's, you know, it's a six-hour listen and a six-hour read on average. Who pays for that continuing education? And what's the state of the law on that? Because when I asked certain malcontents who were working at organizations I was affiliated with to read a book, I got some dipshit say like, hey, will you pay me over the weekend overtime to read this book? I want to answer who's on the clock for education legally, morally, and practically when we get back on This Week in Startups. Hey, everybody, I want to tell you about a great new online community from our friend Sam from The Hustle, you know, the newsletter and the conference. Well, he's got this incredible new service. It's called Trends, T-R-E-N-D-S dot C-O, Trends dot C-O. And it's a great community where they talk about being an entrepreneur and how you can sharpen your blade and be better at what you do. They did an amazing analysis recently about Kickstarter and unbundling it and how startups are now using pre-sales and crowdfunding to fund their companies more than ever before because obviously, hey, it's not easy to get venture capital. And the pre-sales becomes this great way to incentivize people to invest in your company uh, because you're showing demand for your product ahead of time. Really great analysis. And you get access to a community of industry leaders in virtually every field. They do workshops uh, and they have a network of other founders and investors who you can just like basically workshop ideas, you know, and be better at what you do. They have weekly live lectures with experts and they teach you things like growth strategies, SEO, and how to send the perfect cold email so you get a response every time. And Trends has exclusive research, including intriguing topics to help educate and inspire you, like the 30 companies defining the future of media and pop culture, or they have data on thousands of successful Kickstarter projects that you can peruse and figure out, hey, how do you make your startup a success? I'm enjoying the uh, Trends community so much, I want to share it with you. So right now, you get your first two weeks for just $1. That's right, go to Trends. .co, pretty good domain name there, trends.co, I love the .co domain, slash twist, and start your $1 two-week trial, trends.co, slash twist, for your $1 two-week trial, you got nothing to lose there, okay, thanks for supporting the show, Sam, uh, and he was he was on a news roundtable recently, just great entrepreneur, uh, go ahead and join trends.co, slash twist. 
All right, David Blake from Degree.com is here. We got another winning guest. Well done, uh, Nick, producer Nick, crushing it with this season of The Next Unicorns. Is this our second or third season, Nick, of Next Unicorns? Two. This is season two, uh, episode six. David Blake, again, from Degree.com, recently moved to Salt Lake City, uh, doing the Silicon Slopes thing. Um, When I tried to get people to read books, I told you this crazy reaction I got from one person which is not representative. I started a book club to try to get my team and I said it's mandatorily uh, optional. It's kind of my joke. Like, I really wish you would be there, but I can't force you to be there. And, you know, I would say like of my important people in my organizations, it's almost 100% come at 6 p.m. on Mondays, once a month when I do book club at thisweekstartups.com slash slack. There's a book thing. Uh, The next book is I Love Capitalism and... um, the hot hand and previously we did never split the difference uh but who's on the clock for this because th- there's one person who asked me to pay them overtime like oh, oh it's just mind-blowing but how does the law work how do companies look at it and then you know how do you think it should work yeah um you and i should connect on uh, book book clubs next time so i'm actually the uh founder of bookclub.com as well but, I know. Um, I saw that. Whoa, so that's we'll, 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 we'll got talk potential. Books. Let's we'll, make a we'll startup. Talk books next time. Yeah. Let's make that into a startup. I'll back that. <laughs> yeah. All right. You literally uh, own bookclub.com? Yeah, that's me. So, is it a platform yeah. or is it like a real business or is it just a hobby, a side hustle? No, it's, it's a venture-backed startup. Oh, okay. Yeah. Mm, I missed yeah. it. Mm. <laughs> if you want to write a check on the pod, podcast, I don't I know if you've done that do. yet. I kind of do. What's the business yeah. model of bookclub.com? Yeah. Is it just a SaaS? It's a uh, author author led book clubs and oh. it's a subscription business. Fascinating because uh, I did a uh, for Angel the book. I just created Angel University, of course, mm-hmm. and the course is free. I used to give a hundred dollars to charity. Um, all proceeds go to charity. But uh, yeah, I like this idea of authors doing the book clubs because you, you get paid a certain amount, but the course actually you can charge more for. And I think that was Masterclass's idea. And then other people are doing like these $500, $1,000 courses, which is incredible. But what a great domain name. Well done. So back yeah. to the question. Who's on the, the clock, clock for educational so, time? The legal answer. The legal answer first. If you're a salaried employee, then you can ask people to learn on their own time. If you're an hourly employee, then yes, the, the law states that if you require people to learn something that you have to pay them for it, which gets uh, complicates this in a lot of ways. Okay. So now the salaried, journey, which is typically over 50 or 60 grand, depending, I think, on the state, or is that a federal law? But I think it's... Yeah, and I'm... Yeah. I'll, I'll tell you, because I, I think it's... There's an, a big insight at the, the back end of this question. And the journey I've been on was, you know, increasingly, we're responsible for our careers. If, you know, with lifelong learning becoming the mandate, you've just got to be learning all the time. And if you expect your employer to give that to you or to require it of you you know, you're going to get left behind. You just, you've got to take ownership of your learning yep. and you've got to be a great lifelong learner to, to be competitive in today's market. But now um, I've spent years with this question and, and sort of watching the journey. And here's what I'd say, um, you know, more recently where I've come out on, which is we've seen companies are giving, JP Morgan Chase committed $350 million to upskilling. Amazon committed $700 million to upskilling. PwC has a billion dollar commitment. Boeing has a billion dollar commitment. We've seen gigantic upskilling initiatives from corporations. Hmm. And yet for all of these big commitments and programs, AT&T did AT&T Workforce 2020, which was a gigantic initiative. And they gave zero time, which practically is just silly because time is actually the bigger constraint and barrier in people's lives rather than um, money in terms of upskilling. Yep. Money is the second, but time is the first. Yep. So why would you solve your second biggest constraint, be willing to spend hard cash, but not be willing to spend soft dollars in terms of giving people time if, if, if upskilling really matters? If it's a positive ROI activity, you should be willing to give you know, soft dollars in the terms of time, if you're willing to give hard dollars in terms of, of cash. Um, and the, the, the other thing I'll say here is that... Uh, wait, wait, know, so when you say that, I, it, it's still not a perfect answer. So let's say my goal as the CEO of a company practically is to get my team to read six books a year. Just six books. Should I be giving them six days off a year to read those books is what you're saying because it's important or should we split the difference 
or never split the difference, so to speak? I think there's a difference between like continuous learning, which I feel is um, more appropriate to, to keep that burden on employees. Got it. And then the difference is then upskilling or reskilling. If we as a company Upskilling need, or reskilling? Yeah, if we need- Define if we what need, those are because I don't know those terms. So reskilling is helping you um, get a new set of skills that can help you do a new job that is lateral in an organization or outside of the organization. Upskilling is giving you the skills to help you do a new and different job that is higher in the organization. Okay, so, so example, reskilling is your same job. You're not getting a pay raise. Lateral. Lateral. Yeah. So if an example of that would be what? So you are a, um, you're a revenue um, operations analyst, and they're going to um, pay for you to go do Salesforce training so that you can go and be a, a sales um, analyst. You know, Got sort it. of there's a training and you went sideways. Got it. Upskilling so that should occur is, on, your, on the company's clock. That should. Right. I believe it should. Got it. Because, hey, you're not going to get a raise. You're not getting a raise from it is the way I read that. But even if you are getting a raise, and the difference is, is, you know, most of these programs don't, you know, when you think about tuition, you, you referenced earlier in your career, some, some companies, some tuition assistance, you know, a lot of that is, hey, yeah, we'll make five grand available for you to go. And mm. it's often college degrees, but we'll make five grand available for you to go and, and you know, upskill or, or educate yourself. But you have to do it on your own time. Well, the problem with that is right now when uh, who is able to participate and who isn't. And the people who can participate are those who have good internet at home, who aren't a caretaker or who have a lot of support. The people who can't participate are those who, when they get home, have bad internet. When they get home, have a second job. When they get home, don't have you know, any help, you know, a single parent with, with yeah. no help in raising the kids, or they're a caretaker of their ailing parents. And as you look at that, you know, of course, it, it maps disproportionately to under-resourced populations. And so a lot of what's happening inside of organizations is they're upskilling and it's actually making their diversity and inclusion across their organization worse, not better. Um, okay, so, so when, hold when on. Let start, me unpack that. Yeah. I'm trying to get uh, more, uh, I'm trying to help people upskill, which would result in them going to the next level in their career by yep. the definition of upskill. However, if I ask them to do that on their own time, they might come from a population that disproportionately has less time or free time to devote towards that. Yeah. Historically or practically. Right? We got to be careful we don't get canceled here, but uh, <laughs> that's yeah, the reality people, of this is people, people who, who have a lot of support, people who have infrastructure, people who have skills, they're able to successfully take advantage of, of those opportunities. If you people have a nanny, time, if you've got, without, yeah, if you've got childcare, yes. if you've got a nanny, yep. if you can afford that, hey, upskilling is easy because somebody's watching your kids. But if you yes. got to watch your kids, how are you going to concentrate on this course? It's not possible. So it that's works it. against diversity and inclusion. It works against it. So my position on this has been now moved slightly, uh, I'll be honest, because I always, I think I kind of had a jerk approach to it, I'll be honest, which is like, what's wrong with you people? Like, don't you want to learn more? Like, get, you know, read a book, let's go. Uh, but you're right, having had the experience during the pandemic, I think I, my, it's increased my empathy of just exactly how hard it is to concentrate when you have three kids running around, like you probably do right now, you're at home, I take it, or do you, are you allowed I to am. go to the office? Yeah. So you're home, <laughs> and at any point in time, somebody could just come barreling in, barge in, barge barge in yep. and just yep. literally yeah, be careful. I think it's actually important insight, important discussion for us to have, which is if we want, pe if we really want a more just society, more diverse society, and more diverse companies, more just companies, yeah, we're going to have to meet people where they are. Right. And, and that's just the bottom line. Uh, and I love the fact that you're tracking this stuff. Um, and that's why actually I made our book club one hour and I told my team explicitly, like, you don't have to have read the book to come to the book club mm -hmm. because there's 60 people there who are fans of the pod typically. And they'd say what they learned from the book. So sitting there and hearing other people talk about a book and what they great learned learning. from it is great, great learning. learning. Yeah, it is. It's great. Some of the best. It's some of the best because it's literally like, what did you take away from your six hours with, you know, Chris Voss has never split a different shout out. Chris Voss, get him on the pod. Nick, what's going on here? He's been on every podcast, but this one, uh, have you read that one? That's a good book. Uh, I haven't, not yet. Uh, it's pretty good. It's pretty good. What did you read in the last year? Any, any good books that you, uh, or any business books or 
autobiographies yeah. that are particularly inspiring to you in your career and or recent? Yeah, I mean, I just finished uh, Bob Iger. Um, oh, ride of a lifetime. And fantastic. You know, just really to chapter after chapter. I mean, it's like every chapter could have made a career. And uh, he yeah. just, you know, and he strings six of them together and to just appreciate sort of, you know, what he accomplished. And I mean, with, um, with Chad's passing um, Black Panther, I mean, I remember Bob Iger in the book just talking about as an organization, sort of being presented the case that a black superhero was not going to perform well and making the decision and the conviction to do it all the same. Yeah. And, you know, it is the most liked tweet, I think, you know, nearly universally admired and respected. One of just the, the great imprints of, of sort of, you know, in, in culture and in, um, you know, the conversation inside the last, you know, five, 10 years. And, and you know, it's really fun reading, reading sort of that moment in, in leadership. Was there something you took away from Bob Iger's ride of a lifetime? Bob Iger hasn't been on the pod yet, but the open invite, if anybody knows him, I uh, want to zoom in with him incredible book we used we did that in our book club actually what was your takeaway from his experience being an entrepreneur who starts things versus bob Iger, who was entrepreneurial inside of other people's companies yeah i mean um entrepreneurship often feels like uh you know you're cheating somehow i mean it's so hard starting these companies and and to be surrounded by the the safety net and infrastructure and resources of big companies i mean it just to me it never feels the same and yet you know leading disney is different than building something from the ground up and it was an experience that that equipped him and prepared him for the challenges of leading you know a, a multinational global organization with properties across a lot of you know not just media but i mean running cruise ships and and in entertainment and um you know it, it prepared him well and i think you know all of us as we look at our careers should be clear on what we're trying to uh, um accomplish you know because the the pathway um that will most successfully lead you there is is different for every one of us yeah i i always had the same thing with you like this there's no comparison between starting and working you know and then you read bob Iger's book and you realize well he had to navigate all that politics and all of the strategy that was being uh pushed on him and i think the big revelation for me was that the bigger the strategy department under michael eisner got the more they were suffocating the units and that the streamlining of that, and that what got you here does not get you there. Like Michael Eisner was dead set against the Pixar acquisition. And, you know, Iger just saw clearly that that was just absolutely had to occur. And he had the ability to talk to Steve Jobs and he learned some kind of, I don't know if it's, he, he, I, I get a great sense of humility from him which I think works when you're dealing with someone like Steve Jobs. When you come in, you know, and say, you know, like Steve Jobs would, if you're battling with him like Bill Gates did, it's going to be down to, you know, they're, they're gonna, those are gladiators, right? Whereas, you know, when he came into Steve Jobs, he was like, I think we should talk, but, uh, you know, I'd love to open that dialogue with you if that's possible. And, you know, he's like on pins and needles waiting to see Steve Jobs. He's like, yeah, let, let's talk right now. Like tonight, right now, and then like, like in the driveway talking to Steve Jobs about trying to close a deal, where if it had been Michael Eisner, like that paradigm just would not have worked. Michael Eisner um, and Steve Jobs equals no deal, but Bob um, Iger, ooh. he saw it as is uh, you know he was in he was becoming the steward of a legacy, and I think it was that you know sort of sensibility that that resonated with you know with Marvel with with Pixar with uh, hmm. you know with all of it. Yeah, when he talks about the Marvel deal too and getting, who's that guy, Kevin uh, Feige. Feige, Kevin Feige, getting him on board and then talking with George Lucas and getting him on board. It feels to me like Bob Iger was the only executive who could have done that. Like just that ability to talk with that, those, that level of personality yeah. and be able to close a deal with them and listen to them and have empathy, just something that the other side of the table doesn't have right like what gets you what made steve jobs and george lucas steve jobs and george lucas is not what made bob Iger bob Iger, right it's like the, it's almost like this yin yang kind of thing it's amazing infinite games what i'm reading next and uh what is infinite game what is infinite game it's simon sinek's uh, latest uh, title oh right and yeah it's That's... uh 
What did As he I do underst- before that? He did... Um, Start with why? Yes. Yeah, smart cat, yeah. And... Um, you know, I, I heard him give a little recap of it. I'm excited to read it. But as I understand it, you know, the, um, the, the U.S. Revolutionary War was, we perceived it to be an infinite game. If you can outlast, you win. Um, the Vietnam War, it, uh, you know, they were able to outlast, so they won. If you see it as a, a, a net zero-sum game, then it's a finite game. You play differently. If it's an infinite game, if it's, a, if it's an infinite timeline, you pay, play differently to win. Interesting. So that's kind of the premise of, of the, the book as I understand it, but I'm just getting started. I, that is interesting. I, I was told very early that like not giving up was the way to win. Like If you just stick around, you win inevitably like just stay in the game keep podcasting in, keep in writing an infinite game you do yeah. in an infinite game that is true right yeah. if it's not one resource you're going after if you're not fighting over a specific island that there's one of <laughs> that is uh the name of the game what what other books were like super influential for you and um your career i'm curious yeah i mean um we were just uh as bookclub.com talking about the books that changed our lives uh the Ooh. book that Changed My Life is not a particularly well-known title, or, or I don't even recall if it's an especially well-written book, but it's called um, Successful Intelligence. And to bring this all full circle, I mean, uh, to reveal a little bit about myself, but um, I came through high school, top of my class, sat for the ACT, found the experience to be uh, just an absurdity, and started diving in to try and understand why do we do things this way? And it was the first time I seriously in my life just sort of asked why, why, why? Hmm. and came away with the realization I had made it all the way through high school a great student but had failed to become a good learner and didn't like that I was a product of this system what it had turned me into it turned me into a good test taker is essentially what it turned me into but I had no curiosity I had no passion for learning and I realized that early enough to to commit myself to being a great learner and one of the first books um that I pulled off of the shelf in, in sort of that journey was this book, Successful Intelligence. And its premise is simple. It, it's sort of in the EQ sort of realm, but it, it essentially just says that academic success does not actually correlate um, especially well with many successful life outcomes. And Happiness um, being one of them that I've noticed. Contentness. Yeah. It's almost and, like, do you think your obsession or just proficiency in being a test taker led to a disappointment that because you were so good at test taking that your life experience didn't match what the test score was. Oh yeah. Because I mean, tests are so, I mean, they're structured, they're scaffolded, you know, it's, it's uh, convergent thinking and life is like almost always the, the exact inverse of all those things. So, I mean, in so many ways we do ourselves a disservice by, by educating and schooling, you know, those, those attributes out of us. Mm-hmm. Um, out of ourselves and out of out of our 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 youth, and and those were certainly educated out of me. And Sir Ken Robinson, who who recently passed, his schools kill creativity. You know, was very much my lived experience. But that book was the first book that um, you know, as as obvious as it sounds now, it was kind of the first thing I ever picked up that that gave me permission to question this narrative and this worldview that I had to get the the A to get into the best college, to get the best job, to have the best career. You know, and that uh, that pressure you feel as as a young student, you know, trying to trying to win at that game, um, it was the first thing that that sort of allowed me to question the game at large and to see it for sort of the absurdity that that I believe in many ways it to be. It's the road to nowhere. Let's be honest. Like you 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 get on that track, and so many of the kids on that track here in San Francisco and the Bay Area are so unhappy that they're. Um, you know, and th- there's kind of a press block out of this uh, fact that you can look up on Quora, but uh, because there's a concept of, and I think we can talk about it here since this isn't watched by students, but there's a concept of induced suicide, which is, you know, somebody, if you report on a suicide, you might have other people who have suicidal ideation because of it. Um, and there was a rash in one neighborhood in the Bay Area of kids who were under a lot of pressure to kind of be on the track, which was based upon getting into certain schools. I'll just leave it all nameless. Um, and they had an induced suicide problem where they had to do a press blackout and say, listen, we're not going to talk about these students. But I just thought to myself, like, I don't want my kids on this track. And I'm now in the Bay Area. We're getting off this track of like, the goal is to get into an Ivy League school and to 
do perfect on SATs or whatever the tests are, or to do AP courses, like forget all that. I just want to have three children who are great human beings who love learning, and who are content, right? Like, and creative and, and, and yeah. have a joy for life. Like you can really push these kids like, to a level like how do you how do what do well, we'll end on this? What? How has your parenting been informed by your experience? Both as a you know driven test taker and now you know running degree.com how has it informed your parenting and, and what's your philosophy of parenting your own kids in terms of education specifically yeah i mean i've i've re-engineered a lot of my life lately around this question my my oldest is now 12 she's sort of uh, my youngest is seven um my oldest is halfway done with her sort of primary and secondary education and i didn't want to my whole career has been spent on the future of education. I travel the world. I, I've seen the world over some of the most innovative models. And, and I didn't want to blink and have my own kids uh, grown up and, and to sort of have been the cobbler's children who have no shoes. And so for my own kids, I had to really seriously start mm. to ask, how am I going to approach this with my kids? And I'll tell you, there's, there's a lot of things. But the one thing, the biggest thing is we are building an apprenticeship for our kids. And we're doing so through um, bookclub.com. So they are apprentices um, helping to um, build and launch Book Club Junior. Um, I think project-based learning gets you, uh, it contextualizes learning in the real world. But I think an apprenticeship goes even further because projects are essentially made up. Um, you know, if you, if you build a, a volcano for your science project, you know, that helps to contextualize the learning. But when the science project is done, you throw away that baking soda volcano. It's still sort of a, mm. a false reality. And the very best thing you can do is to drive and contextualize learning in your children's real interests and real lives and help them begin to develop those in the real world. And, and that's the biggest takeaway I have for my own kids and, and our approach to it. So you literally have your kids building Book Club Junior. And explaining to them how entrepreneurships and organizations and products are developed as we an do. apprenticeship. And it's, it gives, it's a cornucopia. It just gives and gives and gives. I mean, it's helping. It gives the context for them to learn interviewing and emailing and communications and outreach and networking and video production and editing and uh, wow. comms and web development and front-end A-B testing. And uh, I mean, it, it just, you know, and that's the beauty of anchoring things in a, in a real-world task is that the, the building never stops and, and it gives kind of this breadth. Um, you know, each of my kids have different interests. They have different, different. Yeah, be careful! And now skills. you're going to have three different startups. What if one of them likes baking and the other one likes fashion? <laughs> you're going to have uh, three companies that you're funded inside your house. This could get quite expensive, or you might save money when compared to college, and you might actually get a return on these investments. They might yeah, build a billion not, dollar startup. <laughs> you're not far off from what my house looks like. So it's it's startups and school all mashed into one. See, this is I think brilliant. You know, I started a micro school just literally last <laughs> we're taping this the week the, in week two of the micro school that i've started because we're not going back to school this year i'm convinced i, I don't care what anybody says i think the teachers unions and there's going to tragically just law big numbers there's going to be some teachers who are going to die or students who are going to transfer you know coronavirus and it's just going to create this panic again and, and i think it's just an opportunity during this year and this year of school to just try other options and i'm actually been talking to my 10 year old it's interesting about She's really into baking. She's been watching these like candy making television, reality television shows. And she's also really into fashion. And then she watches me invest in businesses. She said, I never want to be an angel investor. And I said, yeah, you don't have to be, but <laughs> you know, you may want to start a business. She said, I want to start a candy store. And I was like, okay, that's a business. Yeah. I'm, I could be an angel investor in a candy store. Let's talk more about that. Uh, and uh, so I've actually like been thinking about that as well. And this concept of apprenticeship, like where is apprenticeship? on our edge it, it doesn't even exist anywhere in the spectrum i we we try to invest in two or three startups in this space and we haven't seen anybody nail it yet there should be an apprenticeship startup where you pay to go work like with an angel investor or a ceo of a company or whatever and just you know sit with them or scholarships or whatever but man that would be so much better wouldn't it yeah what makes it so hard is 
you know, no one stakeholder has historically had the right mix of incentives to pull a 12-year-old, a 14-year-old, a 16-year-old seriously into their business. Mm. And it's it's one of the advantages, you know, that was available to me as an entrepreneur was, I mean, I, I literally built this business so that I could build an apprenticeship that involved mine and other uh, youth in it. And and that's a real that's a real privilege and a and a real skill set. Yeah. But you know, most people just don't have that right mix of incentives because everyone's trying to do it from the outside in. Try and go mm. and, and create a program and then knock on the door of a business and say, Hey, will you engage with these students? Take them as an apprentice, you know, it'll be good for them, it might be good for you. And and it's just hard. It's hard to to slow your business down or to to reorient, even if you can find an ROI in there, you know, just no one has has holistically had the incentives, but by creating the business to build, be built to create apprentices, um, we've been able to do it from the ground up and uh, hope that it provides uh, an incredible experience while building uh, an incredible business. And, and I firmly believe, you know, at its best, we, we do both. Awesome. Hey, listen, David, it's great to know you. Great to have you on the pod. Um, I feel like this season... I'm just getting so many great founders who I got potential friendships I could make. Uh, I can't wait to uh, visit you in Salt Lake City. I'm, I'm committed to Look coming to, to Silicon yeah. Slopes and maybe we can uh, get a couple runs in or, or, or share a meal or something when I get there. Uh, congratulations on the success. I know you're hiring right now. Uh, if you want to get a job at degree.com, I'm assuming jobs.degree.com or careers. You're, you're Backslash hiring. careers. Backslash we careers. Hiring. Uh, yeah. hiring like crazy. Remote work okay. Work from home Remote okay. Work. Yes. There you go. Yes. Awesome. All right. Uh, stay safe, David. And uh, thanks for being so candid and interesting on the pod. Uh, if you would like to suggest a guest for the pod and you work at a PR firm, don't. We don't accept any pitches. If you're a fan of the pod and uh, there's somebody who you think should be on the pod, you just go on Twitter and you say, hey, at TWI Startups, would or hey, at name a founder, would love to hear you on at TWI Startups. That is the only group of people we listen to is, is the fans and the super fans of the show. Please, if you're from a PR firm, don't email us a pitch on your client. It reduces your chances of getting your client on the show. The only way to get on the show is that you're doing interesting stuff in the world and then we go find you or the fans tell us about they found a product or service they love. That's it. You cannot get here through a PR firm. Do not hire a PR firm. I know there are some PR firms out there who say they've booked guests on this podcast. They have not. So if you get contacted by a PR firm and they say, I can get you on this week in startups, I'm assuring you, we literally make a list of all the PR firms. And if they send somebody, we specifically say that person can't be on the podcast for at least a year. We basically reset it. We don't want PR pitches. We want grassroots, the fans of the show telling us who they want to have on. So I just, I'm a little perturbed, as you can tell, that PR people are trying to sell people that they can get somebody on the show literally is a ban on pr people every time a pr person emails me i hit shift exclamation point and i ban edelmanpr.com or whatever the name of the pr firm is from ever being able to email me again on my personal account because i don't want that noise and if you're out there telling people you can get people on the show and i find out about it ban for life period end of story all right that's it that's my rant thanks dave me on the show we'll see you all next time bye bye